Good morning, church family, friends, guests. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along in it, uh, turn to the last book of the Bible and the first part of it, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, we would love to give you one. In the rack in front of you there, there should be one that looks like this, and you can just take it, put your name in it. We want everybody to have a Bible and be reading their Bibles. Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We are beginning a new series 
today from this book, this last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and we're going to be focusing on the first three chapters. The series is called Underestimated, What Jesus Thinks of His Churches, and I want to explain what I mean by that. This book, as we've just read here in chapter one, was originally addressed to seven churches in what was known as the province of Asia in Rome, the Roman province of Asia, or Asia Minor, what is today known as the nation of Turkey. And you can see there's a map here of the seven cities with these seven churches beginning there on the uh, left, Ephesus. And then if you go around, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And beginning in the very next verse, beginning of chapter 2, Jesus speaks to each one of these churches, one at a time, and he tells them what he thinks of them and what he wants them to do. And it really strikes me that when you read what Jesus says to these churches what he thinks of them, what he wants them to do. When you, when you read what Jesus thinks of these churches, and then you take his thoughts and compare them to what most people think of the churches, you, you discover something. You discover that Jesus has a much higher opinion of churches than we tend to have. In contrast to Jesus, many of us, if not most of us, tend to underestimate churches. Now, what do I mean by underestimate? Well, to underestimate something is to think less of it than you should. It is to regard something as having a lower value or uh, less importance less power, less potential than it actually has. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Years, years ago, we had a big pile of yard debris uh, out in our backyard, actually beyond the fence of our backyard. Big pile, branches and such. And this was back at the time when you could burn your yard debris piles. And that's what I wanted to do to get rid of it. I wanted to burn it thoroughly and so I knew, looking at this pile of yard debris, that in order for it to burn well and burn completely, it was going to need some help. So I went out in my garage, and I was looking for uh, charcoal lighter fluid, you know, the kind you use to, to light charcoal for a barbecue. <laughs> we didn't have any. So I'm looking around, and I had this uh, can of stuff that my dad had given me. I don't think I'd ever used it. It's called Coleman Fuel. And I thought, well, you know, I think that's kind of like charcoal lighter fluid. So I dosed my pile with a liberal amount of this. Now, those of you who know what Coleman Fuel is, you're the ones laughing. You're either laughing or you're horrified. I didn't know. I didn't know. I thought it was just kind of like the lighter fluid. Um, and so I would say 
I seriously underestimated the power, the potential of Coleman fuel. Now, I figured it out pretty quickly. When I lit that match, I got about three feet away from the pile. Whoosh! I was engulfed in a fireball. Fortunately, thankfully, God had mercy on me in my stupidity, and I was able to walk away from that experience with nothing more than some singed hair, (laughs) uh, loss of eyebrows, and a red face. Of course, the next day was Sunday, and I had to tell the story over and over and over. What happened to your face? Underestimating things can lead to serious problems. I think that's definitely the case when we underestimate churches. And I mean church, and let me be clear here, I mean church the way Jesus defines it, the way the Bible talks about it. I, I am not talking about an activity or an event like we're having right now, you know. We'll talk about going to church and what we mean is, you know, gathering for worship. Uh, that's really not what I mean, and that's, that's uh, certainly not talking about the buildings. But church as Jesus means it to be, that is something that we easily underestimate. This happens all the time. It is so common for people to think less of church than Jesus does, to, to underestimate the worth, the value, the, the potential to do good in our lives and in this world. We underestimate what Jesus means for the church to be. On the flip side, when we properly estimate church, that enables us to tap in to that potential, that God-given, Jesus-intended potential, and that enables us to experience life the way He means for us to. And the reason I think this is so relevant for us, if you've been around for the past several months, you know that the, the elders, the leaders, and many of you have been doing a lot of thinking and praying about this church, Philida Bible Church, and how we can be more and more the church Jesus wants us to be and how we can do more and more the things he wants us to do. That's why we did the series on hospitality uh, recently. That's why we just concluded the series on prayer. And that's why we're starting this one. Now, if you're a guest here, um, you know, I mean, I'm so glad you're here. And if you're, uh, you, you, maybe you're not even a believer in Jesus yet. You're just checking out. And I'm glad you're here too. Uh, but this, this idea of, of why we're here, what it is Jesus wants us to be accomplishing, what our purpose is, how does Jesus want us to think about ourselves as a church? Think of it this way. If Jesus were going to write a letter to this church, what would he say? What would he say? Well, what if he already did? What if he meant for each one of his churches, including us, with just the tendency we Americans tend to have, for many people, to underestimate who we are? What if he meant for us to read each of these seven letters to these seven churches 
as if it were addressed to us. I think that's exactly what he means for us to do. So beginning next week, we're going to start doing that. We're going to begin with his letter to the church in Ephesus, and we're going to see what Jesus would say to us through that. Now you might think, well, wait a minute, isn't that kind of reading somebody else's mail? I mean, it was written to Ephesus, wasn't intended for us, was it? Well, actually, I think it was. I think it was. Here's why I think so. As you read each one of these letters and you get near the end of it, they all say the same thing. They all conclude with, with this expression. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. In other words, what Jesus has said by His Spirit to each of His churches, He wants all of His people, all of His churches to hear. That is, you know, someone who has ears to hear. Well, what does that mean? Okay, well, it's not talking about the organ of hearing. It's talking about an attitude, a predisposition, a wanting to listen. Lord, speak to me. I want to know what you want to... What, what do you want me to hear? What do you, what do you want me to, to believe? What do you want me to do? An ear to hear, eager. Jesus used to talk about that when he would teach his parables, his stories. And he would end with, let the one who has ears to hear, hear. It's an attitude of listening. And if we have ears to hear what he says to the churches, then we are going to hear the message he has for us. So I just want to encourage you to pray that we will have ears to hear. What, what is the message He has for us? Because we are one of His churches. Now I know there are, there are groups out there that call themselves churches and they're really not interested in, in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus as we have it in Scripture and they're not following uh, what He says. They're just kind of doing their own thing. But here we want to be fully the kind of church the church Jesus wants us to be. What does that mean? We are one of his churches. So what's his message for us? Well, we'll begin to get in specifics uh, next time. But right here in chapter 1, there are a couple of really important things that we, we need to kind of get straight before we go further. Okay, a couple of foundational attitudes. Uh, attitude, a way of thinking, a, a, a kind of a heart predisposition. Really, what we're talking about is how we need to be thinking in order to have ears to hear. A couple of foundational attitudes that we need to be developing, building into our lives. And I'll tell you right away, these are challenging. These are challenging attitudes because they don't come naturally. This is not the way we normally think. You're not going to find yourself just kind of naturally inclined to think this way. <laughs> And you're absolutely not going to get any help whatsoever from the world around you when it comes to these attitudes to, to build these into your life. You're going to need God's grace in your life to develop and build in these attitudes. But I'm absolutely serious when I say this. If you want to live life, if you want to live life the way God wants you to, if you want to experience His very best in your life, then you're going to want to work at this. You're going to want to basically reprogram your mind and heart 
so that these attitudes become more and more normal for you. That this is how you think and this is how you feel about these things. Okay? Two foundational ads. Here's the first one. First attitude. Value Jesus Christ supremely. Give Jesus Christ supreme value in your mind and heart, in your thinking, your feeling, your living. Value him supremely. Or you could put it another way, don't underestimate Jesus. Don't underestimate Jesus. Regard him. Regard him as having the worth, the power, the importance for your life. Okay, we're not talking here just about something we put on a plaque and hang on the wall. I'm talking about something we really believe and hang on to. That we give him the worth, power, and importance for our lives that he actually has. Because see, that's really the main focus here in chapter 1. It's all about who Jesus really is and why he matters more than anyone or anything else in our lives. And actually, if you go on and read the whole book, which I encourage you to do, you're going to find that Jesus is the main subject, period. You know, it's all about him. It's about his authority, his power, his uh, accomplishments, his promises, what he says he will do for his people. Uh, He is definitely the main issue. And that means, by the way, uh, just something to keep in mind as you read through this book, You don't want to get so preoccupied with the details that you miss the main point. So one of the things uh, that makes Revelation so interesting, it was uh, interesting, we had a, uh, we have this pre-service prayer time, which by the way, you're all invited to, uh, every week from 8.30 to 9, we pray down in room 11, Um, and a couple of people mentioned that, oh, Revelation, huh? That sounds intimidating, because they've read it before. And one of the things that makes Revelation so interesting and intimidating and potentially confusing is that it's full of symbolism. What that means is you've got these symbols that, that stand for something. Like here in chapter 1, okay, it's, it talked about Jesus having a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Okay, well, we can go back and read Jesus after his resurrection. His tongue did not turn into a sword. So what is this talking about? Well, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the power of God's word. Or it talks about seven golden lampstands, and Jesus says, here's what that means. Those seven golden lampstands stand for the seven churches of Asia. So that's what symbols do. They represent, they stand for something else. And there are many, many symbols in this book. If you've read it, there's rainbows and thrones and crowns and creatures with many heads and beasts and special numbers. And, you know, it can kind of make your head spin trying to figure out what these symbols mean. And you can get caught up in that and you can end up missing the main thing. So let's be very clear from the get-go, what the main thing is in this book. Here it is. Jesus Christ is supreme. 
He is Lord. He rules. He is going to win. So this battle between darkness and light, between good and evil, and all of these forces, Jesus wins. He's going to rescue his people. That's one of the big points of this book, is these little underestimated churches. In Jesus' eyes, they're not small at all. And he is going to rescue every one of his people from all the world throws out them. And he's going to defeat utterly all evil. He's going to win. He's going to make right every wrong. And those who belong to him, if you put your trust in him, if you rely on him, then no matter how bad things get in this messed up world, you will never be defeated. You will win because he will win. You will never be beaten. That's absolutely certain because of who he is. So let's just take a few minutes and, and look at what this chapter says about Jesus, about who he is. Okay, And as we go through these, I really want to encourage you, don't let this just be you know, a list of interesting facts. Uh, mm, yeah, that's interesting. No. You know what this is? This is a real description of a real person. This is a real description of a real person. I want you to think about what it means if you trust this person. And if you don't yet trust this person, if you have not yet put your trust in him and received from him the gift of eternal life and all that he promises for those who trust him, I want you to think about what it would mean for you to trust him and what it will mean if you don't. So let these words try to sink in. Think about what it means for you. Okay, first, it says Jesus is the faithful witness. That means he always tells the truth. Always. Just ask yourself if there's anybody else in your life who always does that. Always tells the truth. It says he's the firstborn of the dead. That means he was dead, and now he's not. He's now alive. Do you know anybody else like that? No. It says he's ruler of kings on earth. That means he has ultimate authority. Okay? Even though not everyone recognizes his authority, he's got it, and one day they will. There is nobody. There's no king. There's no president. There's no dictator. There's no organized crime boss. There's no terrorist or groups of terrorists. There's nobody that has money enough, power enough, influence enough to overrule Jesus and thwart his purposes. Nobody And it says he's the one who loves us. Let that one sink in. Do you know, I mean, as you think about your life and you, you think, oh, well, I wonder what God thinks about me. You could think, oh, man, he probably, there's probably all kinds of things he could think about me. Do you realize his most basic attitude toward you is love? And, and I don't mean some syrupy, mushy-gushy, sentimental feeling this is what it means 
the main thing of all the things Jesus feels when he, when he looks at you, when he thinks of you, the main thing he feels when he thinks of you is a deep, heartfelt desire to do you good. That's what it means. And the proof of it's in the very next thing it says. He's the one who freed us from our sins by his blood, his death. I don't know if that really grabs you. Um, That means Jesus is the one who solves our biggest problem. If you ask most people what they thought their biggest problem was, you'd probably get a wide variety of answers. But Jesus is very clear what our biggest problem is. It's our sin. It's this load of guilt that we have before God because of our rebellion against Him, our, our just stubborn tendency to refuse to trust God to define good and evil for us and to choose instead to, to figure it out on our own and to do it our own way. And that is an absolute offense to God. And we are guilty before him without Christ. That's our biggest problem. And Jesus came to solve our biggest problem. And if you're carrying around a load of guilt and you have not yet received this free, do you want to be free of that? You want to just be free? I mean, I think about my life. I think about things I've done. I just say, oh my goodness. And, and, and the load of guilt that I could just be carrying around. And I, I don't have to. And you don't have to. You can be completely free of that. Because Jesus shed his blood. He died to take the penalty we deserve. If you want to be free, Jesus is the one who can free you. And he's the one who made us, it says, a kingdom and priests. Now what that's talking about is Jesus is the one who defines our purpose. And our purpose is God-centered. That's what we were made for. We were made to be centered in God. Um, That's what it means to be a kingdom of God. A kingdom, a people in whom God rules. Or priests. This is marvelous. We We are given access to the very throne room of God and able to offer gifts, sacrifices of praise. We are able to have this this, uh, communion with God because of Jesus. So if you don't know what your purpose is, Jesus knows. He knows. And if what, what His aim to do is in your life, His aim is to just relentlessly keep helping you put God at the center of everything, every part of your life. And that one thing, that is what makes your life meaningful. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. It doesn't matter, you know, where you punch a clock or earn your money, uh, what your, it, God being the center of your life, that's what makes your life meaningful. And Jesus is the one to whom belong eternal glory and dominion. That means He's worthy of our worship. What, what is it in your life, just maybe ponder this, what is it in your life that gets your ultimate devotion, your ultimate affection, your ultimate attention? You know, it, it's funny, people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, not in, I'm not religious, I don't worship anything. That's just not true. Everybody worships something. There is something in everybody's life to which they ascribe ultimate value. 
This is what makes my life worth living. This is what I live for. This is my ultimate, this is what I give my ultimate affection and devotion and attention to. And if it's anything other than Jesus, it needs to be replaced. Then he's the one who stands in the midst of the lampstands. That means the churches, which means he's not just the historical founder of the churches. It means he's with his people right now. He's right there in their midst to guide them and comfort them and correct them. And then this vision shows us he is awesome in holiness and power. He's gracious and compassionate. I mean, look at him. He reaches out. I love this thing about John. You know, this is the Apostle John. This is the John at at the Last Supper. We read a description of him kind of leaning back up against Jesus. You know, this this warmth and intimacy, you know, BFFs here. And, And now he sees Jesus revealed in his glory. And what does he do? He does the same thing everybody else does when they see God's glory revealed. Wham! Face down. And Jesus... Gracious and compassionate, reaches out his hand to touch the humble and the fearful and say, fear not. And he's the eternal one who conquered death. He cannot be defeated. So add it all up. Add it all up. Jesus is the most majestic, the most awesome, the most powerful, the most righteous, the most gracious, the most excellent, the most supremely valuable person in the universe. So it only makes sense that we all should value him supremely in our lives. Nothing, nothing you desire. You just think about what is it, you know, what's something you really, 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 really want? Nothing you desire is better than him. In fact, nothing you desire even comes close to being as good as he is. And the amazing thing is, is that when we value him supremely, everything else we value falls into its proper place. See, so many times we get messed up because we take something of, you know, uh, what's the word? I don't know. But we, we take something that we should value just this much and we, we make it the ultimate in our life. This happens all the time in relationships. You know, we take that person and we make them number one. They can't be number one. They can't handle it. They're not good enough. Only Jesus is. And you put him number one, everything else begins to fall into place. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I would guess that for many of you in the room, this idea that we should value Jesus supremely is not a new idea. It's not a new thought. You've heard this before. And, you know, we, we might, you might be, I don't know, somewhere trying to figure out what that actually looks like and how to live it out. That's, that's where we all are um, if we're seeking to do that. But it's not really a new thought. Maybe this has been a good reminder Oh yeah, I really need to remember, Jesus deserves my supreme uh, value, or he has that. But, now we're going to look at the other attitude that this chapter impresses upon us, and this is where things get a bit unexpected. 
because this is not a common attitude at all. Not only do we need to value Jesus supremely, we need to value his churches as much as he does. Value his churches as much as he does. Now, just from a point of logic, this makes all kinds of sense. I mean, if we're going to value Jesus, then we're going to value what he values. We're going to want to think about things the way he thinks about things. And what he thinks about his churches is amazing. It's amazing. So, (laughs) here's the Apostle John. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos because he won't shut up about Jesus. And it really got the people in authority irritated at him. So they put stranded him on this island. And then he gets this glimpse of this most amazing person, the supremely awesome person. When he sees Jesus, what is Jesus doing? He's standing in the midst of his churches. Now, is that what you would expect the most important person in the universe to be doing? To be hanging around churches? He's standing among them. And as we're going to see in weeks to come, he is intimately aware of each one of them. He knows. He knows everybody in them. He knows those who are committed to him and trusting him and seeking to accomplish the church's purpose. And he knows those who are opposing that and being problems. He knows intimately how they're doing. He knows what's going on what challenges they're facing. And he's speaking to them. He is speaking words of encouragement and challenge and correction and hope. He's right there. He's right there in the midst of them working out his good purposes for the world. Just think about that. Think about what that tells us about the priorities of Jesus. About what concerns him about what he thinks is important, about what matters to him. You know what matters to him? His churches matter to him. That's through whom he is accomplishing his purposes in this world. That's why he's with them. That's why he has a message for each one of them. He values them. They really, really matter to him. And that's so different from what so many people think. I mean, think about it. To the world, okay? To the world. Do churches matter? No. Not at all. I mean, at best, we're just weird things. Just kind of taking up space. And at worst, churches are dangerous. A bunch of fanatic lunatics. Well, what about those of us what about those of us who have put our trust in Jesus and have said, yeah, Lord, I want to do your will. Does church matter to us? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have heard over the years somebody say something like this. Well, I mean, you can be a good Christian and, and, and not go to church. Okay, well, let me just point out one thing. First place, 
The Bible never uses the expression, go to church. Okay, we do. We talk about it because we mean, well, I'm going to go and gather and worship and all that. And I'm not going to pick on that, but the Bible never uses that expression. Going to church is not a biblical idea. You know what a biblical idea is? Belonging, being connected to a church, a community of people who have banded themselves together to worship him, to pursue his mission, to be filled with his spirit, to build one another up, to obey his command and to love others. And you know what? You can't possibly do that apart from being connected to a community called a church. You can't live life the way God wants you to live it. You just can't. And so if we don't value that, if we don't value that connection with these communities of Christ followers, then frankly, we're out of sync with what's important to Jesus. Yeah, I know somebody's going to say, yeah, but gee, churches, man, they have problems. Churches have problems. It might not surprise you to learn that I'm well aware of that. <laughs> they sure do. Why? Because we're full of people who have problems. I, you know, I go to these conferences and things, you get hanging around with people from other churches and leaders, and the inevitable question is, so how's your church? I say, well, it's not really my church, it's Jesus' church, but I, what, what can I say? Some people are doing great. Some people are not so, doing so great. You know, I mean, it's always a mixed bag, because we're a mixed bag. We're people, we have problems. You know, one of the things we're going to see, this is so interesting, as we go through these seven churches in Asia that Jesus is addressing, Every single one of them has problems. Every one of them. And Jesus never says to them, okay, you guys, go somewhere else. He never says that. What does he say? Work out your problems together. Be the church that I want you to be. (laughs) I love what Rick Warren says. I've shared this many times, but it's always good. If you're looking for the perfect church, if you find it, do not join it because you'll ruin it. I'm not insulting you. I'm just saying that's reality. There is no such thing as the perfect church because there are no perfect people. Until Jesus makes us perfect, all of his churches will continue to be imperfect. But no matter how imperfect, if it's really one of his churches, trusting him, seeking to do his will, no matter how imperfect it is, Every one of his churches matters to him immensely. And what Jesus says to any church, he says to every church. He wants us all to hear it because we can all learn something from it. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. We want to learn what we can from what Jesus says to his churches. Will it make a difference? It will if we have ears to hear. If we want to hear it, if we want to understand it, if we want to put it into practice, so pray for that. Verse 3, blessed is the one. Look at this, blessed. You know what that word is? That's the word makarios. It means happy. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. 
My question for all of us, do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be a blessed person? Do you want to have a blessed family? Do you want your, your, uh, your life to be blessed? Do you want your church to be blessed? Then hear what Jesus says to the churches. To his underestimated, puny, insignificant, sometimes despised little bands of people that in his, in his view are the most important people on the planet with a great potential, a great responsibility. Hear what he says to his underestimated churches and respond. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I have thanked you so often and I thank you again for the incredible privilege of being a part of this, your church here in Florida. And there are other churches here in Florida and there are, you have churches everywhere. But you put me here and you put us here and some are checking it out and wondering if you're putting them here. And Lord, I just pray we would hear from you what you want to tell us and we would not underestimate you or your churches and we would strive to think and feel and act exactly how you want us to to be the church you have called us to be give us ears to hear lord in jesus name amen